Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. 22 years after 9-11. Welcome to episode 239. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. 22 years. It's been 22 years since 9-11. And for me, for so many that were there, and maybe for you, it feels like yesterday, but it's been 22 years. And now, 22 years later, it's still a time to stay vigilant. So we just stormed the fucking Capitol, took the motherfucking place back. That was so much fun. So much America. So much America. January 6th will be a day in infamy. That's Joe Biggs. And that got him 17 years in prison. 22 years after 9-11. It took decades and two misguided wars to get accountability for 9-11. And we never really did. We got bin Laden, but it took 10 years. And we lost so much before, during, and after. And we say never forget. But this year, it does feel like we have. And I say that as a guy who lives blocks away from ground zero. And in my view, the closest attack we had on us on the level of 9-11 since 9-11 was January 6th. And thankfully, it's not taking decades and multiple wars to get accountability for that attack on America. We didn't have to invade two countries, scan our shoes at airports for decades, and create the Department of Homeland Security and change our society dramatically to ensure we held the attackers accountable. It's been two years since January 6th, but accountability is now here for many. The American insurgency is still out there, but they are being taken to task. And this week, proud boy Lieutenant Joseph Biggs was sentenced to 17 years in prison. It's the second longest in the more than 1,100 criminal cases coming from the Capitol Hill attack. And another Proud Boys leader was sentenced to 15 years. And then, Enrique Tario, another ex-Proud Boys leader, was sentenced to 22 years. The 22-year sentence is the longest for any January 6th attacker. But the Justice Department was seeking 33 years. 22 years, in my view, is still not long enough. He's an enemy of America who attacked America. Lock him up. Lock them all up because they are still and forever will be a part of the American insurgency that created the largest attack on America since 9-11. And we need total accountability. Lock them up. Lock them all up. But there's still no accountability for someone in Washington beloved by many of the members of the American insurgency. The one and only Senator Redneck. I drive really slow in the ultra-fast lane While people behind me are going insane I'm an asshole, 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 I'm an asshole,
If you thought that Senator Tuberville might have lightened up on his military promotion blockades over the summer, you'd be wrong. Because he's going full blast. This week, his office blasted out a thread of criticisms of the nominees themselves. Now, he's attacking the individual flag-grade officers in the military, saying they're woke or they're somehow not in line with what he would like. These are nominations that are typically approved by unanimous consent. That means there's no argument they go through because people understand this is about our national security. And this week, in response, the top civilian leaders for the Navy, Army, and Air Force printed an op-ed calling out Senator Tuberville for putting our national security at risk. And here's the Secretary of the Navy himself. Someone, forgive me, for someone who was born in a communist country, I would have never imagined that actually one of our own senators would actually be aiding and abetting communists and other autocratic regimes around the world. This is having a real negative impact and will continue to have a real negative impact on our combat readiness. And that's what the American people truly need to understand. He's right. And he's the Secretary of the Navy. And it's come to this. Now, it's about damn time that the Biden administration took off the gloves on calling out Senator Redneck's disgusting, disruptive, and demoralizing attacks on our military. Because the Military Times reported this week that by the end of the year, 90% of all senior military posts could be wrapped up in this ongoing fight between Tuberville and the Pentagon. And this week, the response from Tuberville's office was this. The more Democrats attack Coach, the more he digs in. Nobody's attacking Coach, which is a ridiculous thing to call him anyway. He's a senator, barely, but he is a senator. And he's attacking our military and playing the victim. Just like Trump, just like Putin, but just like with them, everyone can see it. Tuberville's a hack. He's not very smart. He's absolutely ignorant when it comes to military affairs. And he's helping our enemies. Dig that. Every day, Tuberville continues this reckless charade. He continues to weaken our national security. And our enemies are celebrating. Yet, still, after all these months of treachery, not a single senator, Republican or Democrat, has called on Tuberville to resign. There's so much wrong with that. And it's a reflection of how entrenched and dysfunctional our two-party duopoly is. And every single senator, Republican or Democrat, should be asked by the media and their constituents why that's the case. They need to stop whining and hand-wringing. Stop being nice. Stop letting him weaken our military, demoralize our troops, and help our enemies. Do something. Do something. 22 years after 9-11, we need a country that demands and ensures accountability when people attack America from outside or from within. And it looks like next year, that may actually include the biggest and most powerful culprit of all, President Mayhem himself, Donald Trump. Until then, 22 years later, never forget and stay vigilant because stakes is high. And 22 years after 9-11, stakes is high. And also, because like after 9-11, we've got an election coming. 
George Bush ran against John Kerry just three years after 9-11. And three years after January 6th, it'll likely be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And maybe someone else, too. Because the great American fragmenting of our politics continues. Unless you're new to the show, you know that 49% of Americans are independent. And many groups out there think and say they understand us independence. And many groups think they have a plan to get our votes. We've talked on this show before about the Forward Party and to people like Andrew Yang and Governor Christie Todd Whitman, who I've also pressed on this show about her 9-11 response. You should go back and check that out. And we've talked to Joe Lieberman from No Labels. And since then... The No Labels push has continued. And No Labels co-chairman, former moderate Republican of Maryland, Larry Hogan, says he has, quote, not closed the door, unquote, to running for president under a No Labels ticket. Yeah, because everyone's dying for a Larry Hogan for president campaign. These people know nothing about true independence like us. Only about their own arrogance and thirst for power. They're just lost Democrats and Republicans looking for a second act. Most independents don't want a third party. We want no party. And we want leaders, truly, authentically independent leaders. Not just lifelong partisans who recently and self-interestingly changed their jerseys. And speaking of jerseys, we ready. is on Monday. And on Monday, here in New York, the New York Jets will open their season at home with new quarterback Aaron Rodgers against the Buffalo Bills on Monday Night Football on 9-11 in New York. And 22 years after 9-11, many at that game will forget or weren't even born. But just like after 9-11, sports will help us forget and help us remember as there's sure to be a national anthem mention or a 9-11 first responder holding the flag or something like that. But football, and soon playoff baseball, will bring America together in a way we rarely are. Nothing like when we came together after 9-11, but the start of NFL football is definitely a uniquely shared national experience and basically a national holiday. No matter what team you root for, we ready. So are you ready for some football? I know I am. The pain of summer ending is always offset by the start of football. And the football gods are really messing with me this season by putting my kid and me coaching on the Jets in our flag football league. So while I still bleed Giants blue, when it comes to flag football this year, our house is all about the J-E-T-S. J-E-T-S! 
You know, after 9-11, and again after COVID, we weren't sure if football would ever be back. But it is. And so is the first day of school. A normal one. In person and without masks. All across America. Now, some schools, I know, started a month ago. Ours here in New York start this week. And it's definitely sad to have less time with our kids. But it's exciting and inspiring to have them back in school and to feel that sense of community and the optimism of youth and a new school year. It's one of those things that life is really all about. So as we all salute all the kids and all the educators and everyone who makes schools go, from cafeteria workers to police and security guards to sports coaches to bus drivers to everyone, we can celebrate life a little. That's what summer was all about. That's what the first day of school is all about. And it's part of what I want people to know 9-11, 22 years later, should be all about. Never forget also means never taking life for granted because it could be gone in an instant. So enjoy the time you have and enjoy life however you can. And that's a lesson taught to the world by one of the great teachers of our time and of all times that we sadly lost this week. A great artist, teacher, and life liver who taught us all what life is really all about. Heading out to San Francisco for the Labor Day weekend show. I got my hush puppies on. I guess I never was meant for glitter rock and roll. And honey, yeah, the great Jimmy Buffett has died. A guy who showed us how to enjoy life, which is always a good message on 9-11. And his family posted a message that said, Jimmy passed away peacefully on the night of September 1st, surrounded by his family, friends, music, and dogs. He lived a life like a song till the very last breath and will be missed beyond measure by so many. And somebody called No Expiration had a comment on my Instagram that I think put it well. Per your last episode, he was, by all accounts, very nice and surely worked hard to get where he was. It's true. Jimmy Buffett taught us all to enjoy music, enjoy the sun and the beach, enjoy a good drink, and most of all, Jimmy Buffett taught us all to enjoy each other and to create and share good vibes. And 22 years after 9-11, I hope that's one message that we can all remember now and always and truly never forget. 22 years ago, I was there at Ground Zero on 9-11. And so is our friend of this show and the host of the Firefighters podcast, Rob Sarah. He was a firefighter, and that was his first day on the job. And me and Rob and others, we saw the horror firsthand. We were there to witness it in person. The scale, the depth, the scope of it all. And while many folks watched it in shock on TV, we were there, helping Scrambling through the wreckage, trying to find survivors, trying to find anything. We never forget. And we want to help others never forget. But also, 
we want to help the next generation to learn it for the first time. So in recognition of 9-11, after this intro, I'm replaying episode 187 from last year, the 9-11 episode, the stories behind that day with first responders and survivors, Rob Sarah, Rich Navioski, Joe Camarada, Al Berry, and Lila Nordstrom. It's an episode of Independent Americans that I am especially proud of. Because on 9-11, there were no Republicans or Democrats. We were all independents. That was what happened 22 years ago. And that's what can happen in the future. Because independents are the future. And we're not alone in our independence. And if you're among that 50% or so of Americans who are independent, this is your show. But we can all come together around this show and much more often in the years to come. Country over party. Busting up the status quo and fueling a new, better, more powerful movement that spans all across our country. Rising out of the smoke and wreckage, like the Freedom Tower does, now at Ground Zero in New York, blocks away from me now, 22 years later. In the same neighborhood where tomorrow, my little kids will start school. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it far and wide and invite your friends to declare their independence, especially the ones that might be most in need of it. Check out our website, independentamericans.us. Join our Patreon crew. Check out our merch. But most of all, spread the light. And stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, a price that was paid incalculably 22 years ago this week. So stay vigilant. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We are all vigilant. And we're all in this together, like we were 22 years ago. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you so much for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraine. Stay vigilant, America. And never forget. Rob Sarah. I don't know how you feel, but I feel like when that, when the founding fathers founded this country, they they, they 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 founded a government that should be held responsible by the people. And and here we have a government that acknowledged the fact that they that they lied to us, they gave us misinformation, they had their own reasons to get Wall Street open and all that. I'm, you know, that's a whole other story. Yeah. So and now when it comes down to take care of the, of the people that they sent there to clean up their mess, you know, they, they're talking to us about money. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me, tell me about the wheelchair? Can you tell me about the wheelchair that you're in and, and the, the story behind it? Yeah. Well, the wheelchair I'm using now belonged to Ray Pfeiffer. Ray was the face of the, of the fight in 2015. Um, he, he had stage four renal cancer for, for over eight years. And uh, you, you've... You met a, never met a, a nicer, more graceful man. Yep. I, I, don't, yep. I, I don't know if you met yep. him. Did you Absolutely, meet? yep. Uh, you know, I, he lived every day with a smile on his face, and he, even though he was, he, he was dying. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he went down there in between his treatments, and, and, and he did what he had to do up until the very end. So when I uh, started, you know, my, my legs started getting worse, and my neck started getting worse, so I started needing a wheelchair Ray's family was often uh, nice enough to offer me his 
Wow. So now that's what I use when I go down there. I use the, the chair that Ray uh, that Ray lobbied with. And you're carrying on the fight, man. You're you're bringing it forward, and um, I'm grateful for you, and we're all grateful for you. I mean, this 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 makes you angry, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, needless to, needless to say, right? It makes us angry, and it probably should make other people angry, right? I, uh, to quote the uh, to quote Jesse Ventura, I don't really have time to be angry right now. You know, <laughs> I, I think I'll be angry when this is over and that bill is finally signed. But right now, I I can't afford to be angry. You know, yeah. Um, like you said, I got three little kids. Uh, you know, they they don't need an angry father. And, and not only that, I think it, I don't think it would uh, it would help me do my job if yeah. I if I you know because it'd be what I would want to do would just go down there kicking and screaming and yelling and fighting. But you know that that's not that's not that's not what's going to work. Yeah, yeah. And you're the you first know? guy to to quote Jesse Ventura on this podcast, and I, <laughs> and I don't think the last. I think we will have other. Well, Jesse. It wasn't an exact quote. No, yeah. You, you know, he said you know he about. said I ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but, so how do you, I want to, you know, there's some positivity out of this, right? Like you're motivating people. You're setting an example for those kids of yours. Um, you know, what, what's something that gives you hope and, and makes you happy, man? When you, when you think about, um, you know, the future or just the day to day, how do you, how do you keep going, man? There's a lot of people who listen who are going through struggles. What, what kind of advice would you give them on, on how to keep going and, and how to turn that anger into something positive? Uh, I, I think about my kids, you know, I, I, basically, that's all I think about, and yeah, I have a responsibility to teach them, and I, and I know that the odds are that I'm not going to be here, you know, at times when they're really going to need me. So I, I have to give them, as, you know, as much of an example as I can. And I, I say like, I can't teach them how to how to throw a baseball. I can't teach them how to ride a bike. A, I have a lot of physical limitations, but I could teach them how to fight for themselves. I could teach that's them right. how to stand up for their friends, how to do what's right. So that's what I do, and that, that's what I use as my motivation. I mean, if I if I sat around thinking about all the bad stuff that's happened to me in my life, then what good would that do? And and, and who's that going to help? Nobody, right? Yeah. So I just try to keep my focus on, you know, not only getting this bill passed, but helping the other people out. You know, through through the uh, Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. You know, I I, I help out these other families because I know it's it's more than just the first responders or, or the people who are sick that are dealing with this. You know, it's, it's going to affect us for generations. Yeah. And, and that's the sad part. I got, I, got so, one, I got one last question for you, man. Sure. Um, my little kid wants to be a firefighter. He wants to be a firefighter and an, and an astronaut, but he wants to be a firefighter. Uh, what's the best part about being a firefighter? For me, oddly enough, it was the kids. I always loved it. My favorite part was riding around, waving yeah. at the little kids. Yeah. Um, but just getting to help people, you know, and, and I feel like, and I'm, maybe you felt like this in the military, but you really get to know people when, you know, when, when you're in situations where, where you think you're going to die, yep. you know, and I feel yep. like you, you, you get to see a level of truth um, that maybe every, everyday people don't get to see, you know, and maybe a little more respect for life itself or, or, or whatever, you know, I, I always looked at it like every day I went to work, there was a good chance I was going to witness the worst day in somebody's life, hmm. which and you, had, you, and you had a chance to make depressing. it better. Yeah. But also it's good to know that, you know, when people were in that situation, they need somebody there, you know, yep. they need somebody to, to give them hope or give you know, or even just be nice to them and, and hold their hand, 
you know, that sometimes that goes a long way. So, well, what you're doing is going a long way, man. And and it's it's a courageous thing to be there for people on their worst day. Rich Navioski. I was off. I was, but I was working. I was, excuse me. I was living in uh, Long Island City, where I lived there for a number of years. And my, you know, my firehouse was in Woodside. It was a short drive. So, um, you know, I was, uh, was laying in bed and reading a book. And my dad called me up. He's like, "Rich, you, you see the news?" And I turned on the TV, and and you know, it was all unfolding. It had just happened the first plane. So, you know, I I just jumped in my car immediately and, and uh, drove to the firehouse. Uh, and then, and then they did a full recall anyways. And they said, everybody, you know, go to your firehouses. And, and, um, so that, that was, uh, so again, I wasn't working, um, on duty, but, uh, but as soon as we got to the firehouse, everybody just started gathering all the tools. Rescue four had gone, gone down there on the, you know, second alarm or the, I think whatever alarm they gave it, as soon as they realized it was an airplane, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, all, all the guys were, were killed in rescue four and, um, and so we we uh, just gathered all the tools that we could get out of the firehouse, everything that was still there, which, of course, there are plenty of tools. And uh, somebody uh, kind of flagged a bus, you know, an MTA bus on Queens Boulevard. And uh, they, they uh, the bus driver had everybody, all the passengers get off. And we just loaded all the tools onto there. And then everybody that showed up at the firehouse at the firehouse um, got on the bus and we went down. And so the, so um, so then we got to the West Side Highway where they kind of held us for a little while while they were trying to make sense of what was going on and get, you know, get riding lists together too. So they could keep track of that. Cause they, there were so many rumors as you, as you remember, you know, there were so many rumors about who was alive, who was dead, who was missing sure. everything else. You know, I mean, it, you know, at one point they thought, if I remember right, they thought like 40,000 people had died, you know, or something, yeah. you know, I mean, it was, it was really, you know, there was so much uncertainty going on. Um, so once they got us so together, I, I, my group that I was with, uh, there was, um, one, two, three, four, five of us. I think it was, if I'm remembering right. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to be forgetting anybody because it's an important group, you know. But um, sure. but and then the five of us, we we stripped um hose off of a of a engine that was that was parked there, and just you know folded up, and we you know we had a length of hose on our shoulder each of us. We had you know some hooks and stuff, you know. We just grabbed a couple you know tools, and you know we didn't know what we were going to need, you know. We just went walking in, and it was just you know, and as you as I know you re you recall as well as I do, you know, it was just like you went from the gorgeous blue sky into you know armageddon you know i mean it was you know sure. just like a blizzard you know but it was all you know of course ash and smoke and everything else you know joe camarada what we all saw on tv and again i know you were there so this doesn't apply to you but what most people saw on tv who weren't down there it was a lot different than what it was down there you know we were originally trying to find our way to the trade center, but the way that those buildings had fallen, it created like a debris field or like a circular or rectangular debris field that you couldn't really get to the site. So, you know, at that point we were directed by chiefs and commissioners to there's a staging area under the Manhattan bridge. You're going to stage there until we tell you what we need to do until we figure out what we need to do. And that was a couple of hours going by. And I was trying to reach my brother. I was trying to reach my parents. You couldn't get through to anybody. And I'm knowing he's not, things are not okay. And I remember there was a path mark there and we were told to go into path mark and just take everything that you think could be utilized up there. And there were just shopping carts of going in and taking supplies, 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 loading up the vans and just waiting. And then it got to a point where I couldn't wait no more. And I, I, told my captain, like, I need to go up there. My brother's up there. He's missing. I've heard from him. He was like, wait, wait, this is direct order. We need to stay here. We're going to eventually get there. We're going to do our part. We're going to get there. We tried to, you know, we can't get there. We're waiting to figure out what's going to go on. And I just was like, listen, 
going. He said, if you go, you're suspended. I said, honestly, you have to do what you have to do, but so do I. I took off my badge. I took off my shirt. I took off my gun belt and I made my way up to the World Trade Center site. Um, and I went with uh, and, and my partner, Jerome Crimi at the time, he was begging to come with me. The captain's like, he can go, but you're definitely suspended. If he goes, he goes alone. And then the the Staten Island trustee, Richie Rodriguez, had went up there with me and we were climbing over debris and we couldn't see. It was snowing in our eyes. It was burning our eyes. We couldn't breathe. We had no masks. Every time we were breathing, it felt like razor blades going in our lungs. And it was somewhere around like 530 at night. We were across from World Trade Center 7 and there were huddles of firemen all over the place, just like off duty guys. You were probably in one of the pie, the the huddles. I, 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 I couldn't even tell who was there. There were so many firemen trying to huddle. And I just remember seeing the destruction, burning cop cars, crushed fire trucks, flipped over fire trucks, EMS vehicles on fire, sludge, the soot developed into sludge that was, you know, eight to 10 inches deep, fire hydrants broken, water all over the place, snowing. And I remember hearing the sounds muffled under the debris of the pass alarms and the pass alarms are attached to the Scott pack and the Scott pack is the fireman's air supply, which it's likely a 45 minute pack, but it's really only like 20 minutes or 22 minutes of air. And if you remain motionless, you would hear a slow screeching building up, building up, building up until it's a full out screech and an alarm. And I remember hearing hundreds of those muffled deep under the debris. And I just remember thinking to myself that indicated hundreds of rescue workers trapped to death. And I just, I was walking around to these huddles. Has anybody seen engine 28 ladder 11? Has anybody seen Mike Camerata? Where's ladder 11? Where's engine 28? Not no people just looking at me like we, nobody has any idea what's happening right now. You know, it was fear that there was over a thousand firemen that were killed. Um, And I just remember this one old fireman. um, He was, he had to be retired. It looked like his bunker gear. He had like the jean bunker gear from like seventies or eighties. He came yeah. to, you know, retirement to head down and help. And, and I just remember him saying like, this is a grave situation and nobody's going to make it. And I remember another fireman saying this building here is going to come down and it was world trade seven. And I'm not kidding with you within two minutes, the ground started to shake and I was across from seven and seven started to come down and the twisting girders and steel and the screeching and everybody is running and screaming. And I'm with Richie Rodriguez and I'm running and running and I'm hearing debris crashing. And I make a left near century 21. And I look back and Richie's not with me. So now I'm thinking like, did Richie get killed? And as I'm running and I'm hearing all this crashing of debris, stuff is flying all over. I'm saying, what if I get killed now? What if Mike's alive? What did I do? And making the left, and he's not with me. And then I saw a cop on duty near Trinity Church. And I said, look, I'm a police officer. I need your radio. I need to call my unit. And he's like, I don't know who you are. You're not wearing a uniform. You're not getting my radio. And I just remember grabbing the radio from him and calling a 1085, which is officer needs assistance at that location. And that seven just came down. And then my unit came and got me. And that's 9-11 in a nutshell. Al Barry. We uh, made our way up the, uh, I believe was the B stairwell coming in from West Street and uh, proceeded to climb up the uh, North Tower. And uh, we got to about the 16th floor when what we thought were the all the uh, elevators being recalled 
was actually the South Tower collapsing. And, you know, radio silence basically was in effect. There was there was no radios uh, going on. Now, as we've learned, uh, there were reports of no radio transmission being heard um, on the upper floors. So our radios were still working. But at that point, during the collapse of the South Tower, there was no it was silence. And that silence comes into play a little later, as as I tell this to you. Um, so we thought all the all of them were being recalled. We kind of didn't make it anything big of it, but we didn't know that the South Tower was collapsing. I guess that's what I'm trying to get out. Um, so we climbed up to about the 22nd floor when we got the May Day to remove ourselves from the North Tower, imminent collapse. Um, now, 22nd floor is something that is said that the radios did not work past the 22nd floor. So it, that's kind of a key number right. for us anyway, because, I mean, we were, we were not energetic making our way up the North Tower uh, in any, <laughs> any way to say it, because... Our boss, uh, Lieutenant Tom Piambino, he had a, a knee condition. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like every five floors, we had to kind of chill out a little bit, let him uh, let his knees kind of rest a little bit, right. which was to our advantage. <laughs> and, and you're carrying about 150 pounds. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, uh, and some of that gear here. went by the wayside, I, I'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> Once we got around the tent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, with that said, we made our way back down upon here in the May Day and notifying other guys as they're coming up because there were there were still guys coming up. And they were even though we verbalized that there's a May Day, they still we got to We got to we're going up. You know how. how how the men do. We we have our assignment. We got to do what we got to do. Um, so on our way down, you know, it was very orderly. It was not uh, pandemonium coming down. The, the civilians were making their way down as we were making our way up. And on our way down, the civilians were it was it was a very orderly fashion. Um Certain floors, uh, there were no lights, and some people were, I guess, fatigued and needed help, uh, which we tried to do. Uh, we would administer a little bit of air from our packs and, you know, get them moving. Um, so, yeah, made our way down. I would say around the third floor, there was signs of a breach of the building where we had to remove some rubble from the stairwell. And that was kind of when the light bulb went off. Gee, this, 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 maybe that 16th floor recall, there was something, to, something more, right. something more to that, um, which we were about to find out upon hitting the lobby floor. It, it was pandemonium at that point. It was it was walking into the war zone. 
Um, my boss was, he was like, uh, he gathered us together and said, let, let's just make our way out. Cause there's no way I, I can't see where we can get any other information at this point. Cause it was, it was crazy. Um, so we could you went see, out. Could you physically see anything at that point? Or was, was it just blacked out smoke like or dust? No, there, there really wasn't. There really wasn't any smoke. It was like I said, around the third floor, there was some rubble. Right. Uh, from a wall being pushed in, pushed out. Um, but that was really it at that point. Um, don't know what that rubble was because, right. you know, the North Tower did not collapse. But something happened in that area. Uh, but once we got to the uh, the lobby area, it was it was crazy. People were running amok. Um, it was it was nutty. Uh, but my boss said, "Let's let's all go out." We went out the same way we came in onto West Street. There was a chief there that was uh, screaming, "Everybody go north, go north!" He had a bullhorn in his hand, but he wasn't using the bullhorn. So, you know, you could see it in his face. There was something going on. If you look to the left, you could see there there was, you know, it was uh, Beirut. You know, there was a problem. Right. And uh, we really didn't. For me personally, there was no time to actually process that. Because uh, as we took a few more steps. You looked up and the building was coming down. And that was easily processed. We started, uh, you know, running, <laughs> running north. And uh, everybody got scattered at that point from my company. I, I dove behind a, a police car. And um, moments later, I had a pile of people on top of me. And um, yeah, that's. The North Tower had collapsed. And uh, talk about the silence and such things that it was slow motion, really, the process. I, I didn't watch it come down. I saw it once as it was coming down and, you know, knew I needed to get the hell out of there. Yeah. Um, as it was coming down, the silence was just amazing. Um, is it a slow motion process of your mind? That's probably what it is, you know, and your mind filtering out things as you're trying to run for cover, you know? Lila Nordstrom. I think there's a lot uh, that gets lost when we talk about 9-11. Um, so I'm hoping you can fill that in, uh, especially for those in the first responder community. Um, as we saw in the last couple of weeks uh, when we lost all those children in those fires, um, it's kind of our responsibility to take care of the children, right? Like we always, we take those losses the hardest. Um, totally. And I think that's kind of why we, we do what we do. Like my favorite part of being a fireman was the little kids waving at the fire truck when you drove, it's like the greatest <laughs> feeling in the world. But really that's, I mean, we're there to help all people, but, but the, the helpless and the, and the children, are our main responsibility. And uh, when it comes to 9-11, the children are not being taken care of, um, which is not what we do. So Lila is going to tell us what's going on and what we can do to help. So Lila, 
let's jump right in. Absolutely. Um, so there were probably about 50,000 students and young people who were in the exposure zone on and after 9-11. So it's a huge number of people who only make up maybe, you know, like a sixth of the total population that was down there. There's obviously a lot of civilians that got impacted by 9-11. And I think even that is not something that a lot of people are aware of. I mean, I live in California, so I am aware of what the rest of the country says about the 9-11 health issue when they, you know, haven't been exposed to New York media all of this time. And what they say is that, you know, they have never heard about these people who lived and worked downtown Um, A lot of them, when I say that I work on this issue, the first question is, was your dad a first responder? They assume that there's no reason that like a young woman might be involved in this cause. And I think that has a lot to do with the way that we frame um, our responsibility to victims in general. I mean, I think people can understand why, you know, we feel that we have a public responsibility to first responders because they are working on behalf of the public. So, of course, you know, we should absolutely be taking care of their health. We should absolutely be focusing on making sure that their jobs can be done safely. Um, but, you know, when it comes to community members, we often feel or speak like we don't really have a responsibility to members of a community who are also, you know, affected by poor policy decisions and affected by, you know, decisions that prioritize the health of the economy over the health of individual people. And that's problematic in a country that doesn't provide health care as a right. You know, it's really problematic when you, you know, talk about sending children back to school because maybe it's safe, but you're not going to provide for their care in the long term. So if they do get sick, they're sort of on their own. And that's kind of what happened after 9-11. I mean, I was a high school student on 9-11. I was a student at a school that was three blocks from ground zero. We got sent back to school on October 9th, which is, I mean, the fires weren't even out on October 9th. October 9th was basically, you know, the the middle of the search and rescue operation still. And they, you know, they decided to reopen our school. The decision was really based on a need to stop the economy from freaking out. You know, they were looking for acts of symbolism that would make it seem like New York was getting back on its feet because what's more distressing to the economy as a whole than the idea that Wall Street is going to be closed for the foreseeable future. So they marched this, you know, ver- this this uh, special gifted and talented high school back um, in front of news cameras, back into our building, three blocks from the World Trade Center, and then left us there in the middle of this huge environmental disaster for months, all the while denying that there would be any long-term health consequences. Now, of course, we know, and we know because of data that was collected on first responders, that there were widespread health consequences to everyone who was in that community after 9-11. Our exposures in particular were very similar to a lot of the responders who came to help with the, um, with the actual cleanup operation. You know, it's, it, we were there for three months of fires. We, you know, had to walk through an area that was close to the public to get in and out of our school building. On my first day back in school, we had to show our IDs to something like five police checkpoints, which <laughs> maybe is not an indication that that's an area that's safe for minors right. and people without protective gear. <laughs> right. Um, but so there was sort of, a, you know, there was no responsibility taken for our health in the immediate aftermath. And, you know, it was a complicated time. And I think people were not necessarily thinking straight in general. But um, then when it became clear that that would have long term health consequences, much like with first responders, it was like suddenly no one had any responsibility for anything. Um, and we had an even harder time sort of proving our need and showing that we were um 
that, you know, showing, showing that we needed the services because no one had even collected any data on us. That was, you know, I, yeah. I've learned a lot about the politics of uh, research and medical data in, in, in doing this work. And, you know, what's so interesting is the, the way that we determine need is based on the way that like research funding is, uh, you know, apportioned. And of course the FDNY was keeping track of people's health. So of course the FDNY was one of the first entities that could prove that there were health consequences coming out of nine 11 and well, of course, politics to that as well. <laughs> right. But, but, but that's what leadership is. And, and to exactly. go back to what you said that, that people weren't thinking clearly, but, but that's your job as a leader, as a, right. as, a may, as a mayor, as a governor or whatever is to think clearly when, when the shit hits the fan, that's, that's, that's what you get paid for. It's you're not, wild you're the, to me how bad adults in charge of things are about the, about seeing long-term consequences of literally right. any decision they make. I, I feel like uh, it's like uh, George Costanza running out of the room, screaming fire as he's pushing kids. Right. Uh, <laughs> that, that seems like how our government responded after nine 11, they were just kind of, they freaked Absolutely. out and then to, 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 to make it look like they weren't freaking out, they made horrible decisions that are now costing thousands more lives needlessly um, for all the reasons you just said, opening up Wall Street and, and all that uh, yeah. pomp and circumstance that really. Was, that, it was for it was all for a sort of symbolic victory that had nothing to do with what was happening on the ground. I mean, it was symbolism. If you really want to never forget. If you want to make sure that Never Forget becomes more than a hashtag that's thrown away by politicians, listen to the full episodes from the conversations that I shared here. They'll be linked in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to Independent Americans and subscribe to the Firefighters with Rob Sarah. It's like no other podcast out there. And it's about so much more than 9-11. It's about our past. It's about our present. And it's about our future. So stay vigilant, my friend. Powered by Righteous Media.